Mosaic, how are you guys this morning? Yeah? Well, it's good to see you guys, and I'm excited to be together. I, honestly, I, I, I'm excited for this year. I can't, I can't think of a better way to start the year off than to be together as a church and to refocus our, our attention and our thoughts and our affections, our questions uh, to Jesus. And, uh, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. And so, I, you know, as we, as we kick into gear and do this, uh, I just think it'd be appropriate as we kick off the year and ask God to, to come and to speak to us uh, that we open up in prayer. Is that cool? Yeah? All right, let's do it. Lord God, I, I thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, close the chapter um, uh, and, and open up a new one uh, with you together as a, as a community of faith. And, and even looking back on the last one, Lord, I, I just can't help but be so thankful for all the ways in which you used this community uh, in 2015, the ways that you used us, the way that you worked in us, uh, just see your faithfulness everywhere. And, and so I just, I just look with great hope and expectation to this next year and, and ask that you would, at this time, as we come before you and kick off a new year, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would make our ears attentive to you and your spirit. Uh, and that you would lead us where you will. And so we give you this year, and we give you this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, I've got a, a prop up here this morning. I've got a gavel. And uh, as many of you know, this is a symbolic of justice, uh, something that we use in our justice system to bring about order, uh, and also to pronounce judgment, consequences uh, for actions. And I have this up here with, with me today because I, I, I want to submit to you kind of a big idea as we begin. And that is that in aside every single one of us, whether you're religious or not or grew up in a church or not, I believe that in aside every single one of us is an innate sense of justice, of right and wrong. And it might not be exactly dialed in correctly, but it's there, right? It's the thing that, that when you've been wronged and you've been a recipient of injustice, it's the thing that makes you want to get back at somebody, Right to, to make the wrong right. Even if you're the kind of person that doesn't necessarily take action, it's that thing in you that wants things to be made right. And it's, it's, nobody had to teach you it. Uh, it's, just, it's just there, this innate sense of justice. Right? And, and so just for an example, I'll, I'll never forget our, our, our daughter Chloe when she was two years old. Uh, something she did, and if you know Chloe, uh, she's got the sweetest disposition. And she's just like that little girl who's characterized by joy all the time, even when it doesn't make sense. Uh, she's sweet. And we, so we often say that Chloe's in Chloe's little world, her little Chloe world. And in her little Chloe world, there's, you know, unicorns and clouds and love and joy and music. There's always music. There's dancing. And Chloe just kind of bounces from one place to another. It's just who she is. Sweet, sweet girl. And uh, I'll never forget, when she was two, her older sister Paige took something from her and walked across the room. And Chloe got very serious. And she marched right across the room and looked down at her little sister and headbutt her right in the face. <laughs> and Paige starts crying immediately. And if you've ever taken a skull to the nose, you know why she's crying. It hurts. And she's crying, and Chloe starts laughing, right? Because in her mind in this moment, her little two-year-old mind, justice has been served, you know? <laughs> And, and, and this isn't all of us. She definitely, I never taught her that. You know, she, he, she never saw me headbutt her mom or anybody for that matter. She just did it, you know. And, and I'm finding as a dad, the more kids we have, like, it's, it, this isn't all of them. You know, so like literally just a couple weeks ago, I'm picking up Paige and Chloe from Randolph Elementary, standing outside, little Jackson, who's 19 months old, another sweet, very sweet kid, little cuddler, lover of a guy, feisty, but a lover. 
And he's walking out around the side, and he's got a, a stick that's as big as he is. And some other little kid runs up and takes his stick. And Jackson gets very serious, and he marches over, and he takes the stick back, and then clocks the kid over the head. <laughs> Again, never modeled for him, I promise. Like, he didn't learn that from me. It's just in him, right? He, he had been the recipient of injustice, and he decided in that moment to take justice into his pudgy little hands, right? And so this isn't all of us, right? And you see this like when you drive around town and, and you see somebody get cut off. And if there's somebody who responds to injustice, what do they typically do, right? They, they fly up on that person's tail, you know, to let them know, I've been a recipient of injustice and I'm not very happy about it. Sometimes there's, you know, hand signals or they'll like, my favorite, they'll speed around the car and get in front of them and hit the brakes. You know, have you seen this? Right? In, in all of us, there is this sense of, uh, injustice as, that's innate to all of us, right? And so we've been you know, going through the Beatitudes, and if you were not here in our last one we explored, uh, Jesus makes a statement. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? Which we unpacked and explored a little bit, and, and ultimately what it means is hungry, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who long and yearn for the world to be made right which is a longing for justice, right? And I think for all of us in this room, we can get on board with this idea. We might have different ideas of what justice is or, or how to bring about justice, but I think all of us can get on board with the idea that there are various injustices in the world, uh, things that are wrong, uh, that we wish we could, be, uh, we could make right. Um, now, I say all this because uh, this is going to create some tension for us this morning. Um, Because one of the things that we've been finding with Jesus as we've been exploring uh, his pronouncement about the kingdom of God is Jesus uh, makes a habit of saying things uh, and inviting us into things that make us very uncomfortable. Things that we would not naturally choose for ourselves. Um, A way of life, a way of living that is counterintuitive, right? His pronouncements about the kingdom of God, many of them, uh, are not only counterintuitive, they're almost they're upside down as to how we understand the world to work, and I think if we were really honest, how we wish the world uh, would work, how we want it to work. Um, and so Jesus in the Beatitudes is, he, he's really challenging us. He is, he is doing work, and it's not always a painless experience. Uh, maybe I could illustrate it this way. Um, I believe there are basically two different kinds of people in the world. Um, there are those that can work with their hands and fix things with their hands, uh, and then there's everybody else who can't, right? And, and if you know me, I'm the latter category. I, I grew up in a home where we didn't fix or build things together, right? If there was a problem, you call somebody. That's how you, this motion is what I was taught by my dad. And honestly, even if he hadn't done that, my, my brain doesn't really, it doesn't really work that way. And so I've shared this before, but I did pretty well in school, but the hardest class I ever took was shop class. I was bad. In fact, I had in middle school, eighth grade, it's the only time I had to take the class, so it's the only time I did. Uh, I had a 4.0 GPA, and I barely passed shop class. It was hard for me. Kids would, like, place bets, you know, on, on how many fingers the new kid would lose at the saw, you know, they gather around and watch. And, and my wife, Megan, is exactly the opposite. She is really good at building things, figuring out how they work. She won't even watch YouTube videos if something's broken. She just figures it out. And so, you know, I'm, I'll just admit to you, like, around our house, She's like Mrs. Fix-It. You know, it's not me. It's, it's, mostly, it's mostly her. And, and so she's always doing stuff. And uh, one time I came back from a work trip, and she had remodeled the bathroom, tore out all the walls, put up new walls, new tile, new appliances or faucets and stuff. And then she had done, redone the countertops in our kitchen and painted half the house. Uh, so she's just that person. But over the years, uh, as we have done some major projects around the house together, 
which usually is her doing it and me praying for her and offering moral support. Um, I have learned a few things as it relates to large-scale remodeling projects. And that is, one, uh, it rarely ever goes according to plan. Uh, You almost never have everything you need when you set out. It almost always takes longer uh, than you expect, and it's painful, especially if you're living in the house while the remodeling is, is, is taking place. And so this summer, while we were on sabbatical, uh, we, had to, we had had major water damage in the spring, and we tore out the walls and come to find out we had big-time foundation issues. And the foundation company said, it's too far gone, we can't help you, you need to hire a mason. Uh, so these masons came in, and they actually put our house up on stilts, and they took a jackhammer to our basement, removed uh, one of our foundation walls and the floor, and it was an absolute mess. And all over our house, there was like this layer of dust on every single one of my books. I mean, everything. And so our eyes were burning. We're coughing and cleaning for weeks. Uh, it, was, it was absolutely painful. It took a lot longer um, than it was supposed to. And, and, and I say all this because what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is, he is doing work. Right? He is coming into our world, our home, our lives, and he is blowing out walls. And he is taking a jackhammer to the things that need to go. And he's seeking to lay an entirely new, an entirely new foundation. And, and if we will let him to invite us into a, a completely different kind of life, right? To rethink about how we understand this life and how we live it out in a world where God, that God is reclaiming, reshaping, remodeling, redeeming, and reconciling back to himself. And today, as we look at the fifth beatitude... Uh, he's going to continue to do work. And he's going to really press into our, our ideas about justice and retaliation and revenge in a way that's going to be a little bit painful. Uh, he's going to blow out some walls and take a jackhammer to those things that need to go. And this is what he says. In the last beatitude, he speaks to justice. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and long and yearn for the world to be made right. Justice. And he's promising justice is coming. Uh, those people will be filled. But then he follows it with this statement as we consider how we are to live in this life here now. And here's what he says. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. All right, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table and just say up front that when it comes to mercy, mercy almost always, always, always offends our understanding of justice. By its very nature, mercy pushes back on what we understand, what we think is right, right? It grinds against what we think people deserve, what a person is due for their actions and uh, inactions. All right, here, here's, here's what mercy means. To be merciful right, implies that you have empathy towards somebody that moves you to compassion, right? And so there's two words here. Uh, empathy uh, with the pre- it has a prefix M, uh, and the word pathos, which in the Greek means to, to suffer, right? And so to have empathy towards somebody means that you actually enter into their experience. You enter into the suffering and, and seek to see the world as they see the world and to experience life as they experience life. You put yourself in their shoes. And then that moves you to compassion. And compassion is two words as well. Come, which means to actually come alongside of, and again, pathos, which means to suffer, Right? And so you put yourself in somebody's shoes, and then you actually saddle up next to them, enter into their suffering, and have compassion towards them, which means that's an active compassion. That's, that's using your, your thoughts, your actions, your resources, your talent 
to step in and to, to meet to meet a need. And, and, and the word can apply in, in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, in the Gospels, as you look at the life of Jesus, uh, over and over he has opportunities to have mercy on people. And you find people with different sicknesses and ailments, and they're calling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? And he often he does. Uh, but it means it has a very particular application when it comes to uh, forgiveness and somebody who's in need of forgiveness. Right? When it comes to someone who needs to be forgiven, to have mercy on them means that you don't bring justice that maybe they deserve and that you show them kindness that they may very, very, may very well not deserve. Where right? you enter into uh, their perspective to be kind of at the mercy of the court and guilty, so to speak, to be in need of forgiveness and allow that to move you to compassion to actually step in and to, to meet a need. Now, the reason this is so huge, one of, one of the most incredible truths about the incarnation that we just got done celebrating at Christmas, Jesus coming, being with us, is that in Jesus, right, we see God as he really is, uh, which is an incredible truth if you think about it, that if Jesus is who he claimed to be and who all the, the scripture writers claim and affirm him to be, uh, more than a man, more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a miracle worker, but God in the flesh then in Jesus, we actually see the character of God in 2020 vision. And this is one of the reasons that like the gospel writers, people like John, uh, said things like, you know, no man or woman has ever seen God. And he says this even though throughout the Old Testament you have people seeing God in a sense. You have people who have incredible experiences with God and visions of God. And there's theophanies and, and all kinds of things, revelations, right? Ezekiel and, and Moses and Isaiah and, and all kinds of people who have experiences with God. But John says, the thing is though, right? All those experiences uh, are so, um, they're so contextualized, they're so biased. Uh, many of them are visions and revelations. And so they're a little bit uh, muddled and fuzzy. Nobody could definitively say this is what God is like as a result of those experiences. But then he says, in Jesus, though, in Jesus we see God as he really is, his character in, in human form. And, and there are scholars like um, Brian Zahn, for example, who says, you know, God is like Jesus. And Jesus is like the Beatitudes. And to the extent that we misunderstand the Beatitudes is the extent that we do not understand Jesus, which is what makes this so incredibly important. And when we look at Jesus, if we could say anything about his life, I think one of the things we could most certainly say, and a drum that he continually beats with his life and with his words, is this idea of mercy. Because it's an expression of the character of God. This is why he says things like this. This is uh, later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke's account. Jesus uh, says things like this. Love your enemies. Love them, your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them. Practice generosity towards them without ex expecting anything. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the grateful and the ungrateful and the wicked. And then he says this. He says, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Right? And he says, this is, this is who God is. Right? And I would suggest to you that 
when it comes to this idea of mercy, we, we are only able to, to pay mercy forward and express mercy to other people uh, in proportion to how much we understand how much mercy we require. And this is one of the reasons, like, at, you know, at Mosaic, we, we constantly come back to the gospel, right? And the gospel is, right, that every single one of us is broken. I, I've never sat down with an atheist who has, who has ever pushed back on the idea that he or she has done things that they're not very proud of, things that they know they probably shouldn't have done, thoughts that they know they probably should have thought, things they'd love to go back and do differently. I've never sat with anybody who has disagreed with that. Right? And the gospel is that brokenness creates a barrier because God is not just a slightly better version of us. He's altogether different and altogether holy, and so there is this barrier Right? And God sends his son, he enters into the human experience to redeem us, to reconcile us back to God through his sacrifice on the cross, and then to use us to begin to continue to usher in the kingdom of God and to be a light in the darkness. Right? That, that's the gospel. And the reason we talk about it is not just beca- to make us feel good, although it should. It's great news. But because the gospel starts with our brokenness, our need of mercy, our need of forgiveness. Right? And when we come back to it, what that should produce in us is this life that is characterized by humility. Like, who are we, honestly, to judge or to say that anybody doesn't deserve mercy? Right? Where we are just grateful and full of joy and life and thankfulness for the incredible mercy that God lavishes on us every single, every single day. But the problem is, when we don't do that, because of our innate sense of justice, combined with our fallen nature, living in a fallen world, our go-to posture is to pick up the gavel and to play judge and jury, right? And to walk through life and, and to, rather than focusing on our own sin, our own brokenness, our own shortcomings, to start looking out, because let's be honest, it's a heck of a lot easier to see the brokenness in others, to see their need for mercy. And oftentimes we don't want to give it and the, here's, here's the big problem with it, if you're taking notes, is judgment is the antithesis of mercy. It's the opposite. It is the polar opposite. Judgment is the antithesis of mercy. When we, when we judge people, the, the Greek word there is krino, which means to separate. And there's good krino, like when we separate good from evil or helpful from unhelpful. But there's a kind of krino, a kind of separation that the New Testament unequivocally forbids. And that is when we separate ourselves from other people, usually more like this. Right, when we, rather than entering into their experience and practicing what we're talking about, empathos, uh, you know, empathizing with people, showing compassion to people, rather than that, right, we set ourselves apart as judge and jury. And we start looking at all the flaws and shortcomings of everybody else rather than honing in on ourselves. And what Jesus is saying, he says this, he says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Right, don't you dare forget ever how much mercy you require from God every single day and the fact that he gives it to you on tap, relentless, relentless mercy. And, and yet, uh, I think for most of us, when we're not thinking about it, when we're not reflecting on it, I think for most of us, we are judgment machines. And uh, man, I'm guilty of this. You know, as I was stirring on this, this message the last few weeks and just sitting on this passage, uh, I started to, to pray a prayer. And I, I just asked God to make me aware of all the times, any time that I was picking up the gavel and, and playing judge and judging the worth or lack thereof of other people in whatever form. And I'll just be honest with you, um, I was a little taken aback 
um, by what I saw. And, and there was one experience in particular that we were at the mall, and uh, I feel like the mall during the holidays is like Hades incarnate uh, most of the time. So it's probably not in the best place, but, but it really brought this to a head for me because I'm in the mall, and, and I'm just walking through. You know, on the outside, I'm just being dad. You know, I'm with my kids and Megan and my extended family. We're walking through this mall, kids and families everywhere. And in this moment, it was like the scales kind of fell off, and I realized what I was doing. And I didn't even know I was doing it. But as I was walking through this mall, I am playing judge and jury all over the place. I'm walking down this mall, and I'm like, I'm just thinking, uh-huh, all right, yep, uh, lovable, hard to love. You know, um, good parent. Not so good parent, you know, like get your kids under control, you know, I'm thinking godly, ungodly, and I'm just going through, I'm not even realizing I'm doing it, but I'm going through and I am judging all over the place as if I am sitting on the throne of good taste and godly living, right, playing God without even, without even realizing that I'm doing it. And, and, and I think for most of us, when we're not paying attention to this, we're not prayerful of it, we do this all the time. It is our go-to. Right? This, picking up the gavel and playing judge and jury, this is, this is the first sin. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and we think we know better than God. And from the, it seems like from the moment that we were endowed with the knowledge of what is good and what is evil, we have felt that we deserve really to be on the throne. Whether we mean to or not, whether we're cognizant of it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, and judging one by one. And the biggest problem with this is when every single one of those judgmental thoughts in all their forms, right, it's like a cork, right? And it blocks the flow of the love of God through us, just cuts us off because of Krinos, right? We are separating ourselves from others rather than entering into their experience. All right, so Jesus gives us a couple of very helpful regards uh, suggestions in this regard. And he tells us, uh, you know, in Matthew, just a little bit later, he says, you know, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? And he says, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And he calls us to pray. And the second thing he says, you know, and when it comes to sin, by the way, I know you're, you're so good at seeing the sin in everybody else. Before you step in and play judge and jury and decide to point out how everybody else is falling short, uh, before you remove that speck of dust in their eye, you need to deal with the two-by-four in your own eye, right? Which is a way of saying, you know, not necessarily that your sin is necessarily worse than their sin, but when it comes to addressing sin in general, right, if you have not been invited to speak truth into somebody else's life, you have no relationship or credibility, and you feel prompted to go and to call somebody out and play, and play judge and jury, just don't. Right? You need to, we need to make a, take a hard look at, at our own selves in the mirror and realize that we are more, or we are as broken as anybody. Right? That we have thoughts that, that have run through our head that nobody else knows about, but God knows about. Skeletons in our closet. And then God says in Jesus, I love you anyway. Right? I'm extending you mercy every day, every moment that you don't deserve. Yeah, I, I, for... I believe our call, the primary call for all of us, and this takes work and it takes training, is to put the gavel down right, once and for all and to realize that our one job as kingdom people, uh, with regard to every single person you come in contact with, without exception, is to agree with God that that person was worth 
Jesus dying for. And if you do that, it is a game changer. Right? Every single time you run into somebody who drives you freaking nuts, right? or you think about that person that hurts you so deeply, right? or that, piece, that person that just annoys you in the cubicle next door, right? our primary call is to agree with God that regardless of how we might feel about them at times, that that person was worth Jesus dying for. Right? And every, uh, the, way, the way that we think about them, speak about them, speak to them, interact with them, should, needs to reflect the truth that they have unsurpassable worth. And any time our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our interactions, our behaviors reflect something other than that, we as kingdom people have to repent of that immediately and put that thought aside and agree with God that that person is worth Jesus dying for. Our attitude should be that of Paul. I love what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, When I was with you, I resolved to know nothing except for Christ and Christ crucified. In other words, I have a lot of thoughts on things, rather intelligent, got some judgments maybe about this person or that person, but when I was with you, I resolved to know only one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. For me, yeah but also for you, right? And also for him and for her, for him. Um, and this, this, is, uh, this kind of extends beyond boundaries. The thing is, when we came to Christ, I would submit to you this, the moment that we came to Christ, for those of us who have, and if you're thinking about it, you never have crossed that line, this is important for you to know. For those of us who have, the moment that we crossed that line of faith and came to Christ, we forfeited our right to pass judgment and withhold mercy from anybody. As recipients of grace, we are called without exception to extend that mercy out, to pay it forward to every person we have the opportunity to, and to put to death any thought or behavior that reflects anything other than that. Right? So that girl on Facebook who just posted another selfie, you know, and her makeup's perfect, and her hair's perfect, and the angle's perfect, and she's got 14 filters on it, right? The moment... That you start to pass judgment and think, what in the, how much attention does she need, you know? Before you go there, right, part of empathos, part of empathizing with people, having compassion on them, is considering that, you know what, there's probably more there than meets the eye. Right? Maybe she didn't receive affection that she needed from loved ones. Maybe there's insecurity there. Honestly, none of that really matters. That's not our place to judge. But that is a young woman, or maybe a not-so-young woman, who God thought Jesus were dying for. You know, or when you're in the store, like me, and you see somebody with a kid who is completely out of control, you know, get your freaking kid, you know, under control. You know, if I was the dad, you know, and you start to go there. Right? Part of empathizing is slowing down long enough to actually look in that parent's eye. And I think most of the time if we would do this, what you'd see there is exhaustion and, and frustration. You know, or, or maybe it's that coworker that, that drives you crazy, you know, or that guy at the gym who always sticks his chest out when all the guys walk by when he's not looking in the mirror, you know, or, or that person at work who drives you nuts, or that person at Mosaic who most weeks you're not even sure if they're, that you doubt their salvation, you know. Um, maybe, it's the, maybe it's the ex-spouse, you know, who hurts you so deeply, you know, or that friend who betrayed your trust. You know, or that person who used you and abused you 
and took something from you that you can never get back. And to each and every one of them, we are called to withhold judgment and just agree with God that that person is worth Jesus dying for, that they have unsurpassable worth. You know, in a fallen world, I think for most of us, by nature, we are pain avoiders. Because life is hard for everybody, right? So why experience more pain than we have to? But I would submit to you as kingdom people, right? We are to be a people who actively let the pain of the world, of those around us, in on the inside. Right? And to work tirelessly to extend mercy and to affirm the image of God and the unsurpassable worth in every single person we come in contact with. I grew up in Worthington, Minnesota, and there was a, a kid who was a part of our church in school. His name was Matt. And uh, Matt was a tough kid, and Matt had some issues. And, and one of the things about Matt is he was full of rage. Uh, and it wasn't very hard. He was like he had a little switch inside of him, and it didn't take much time or effort to flip that switch. And when that switch got flipped, like all bets were off, and he would, he would just rage. He'd rage on kids. He'd punch teachers. He would throw anything and everything that was nearby. Uh, he, he was kind of a scary kid. And um, later came to find out that uh, one of the things that Matt uh, would do is he would actually torture animals. And so he would take cats and dogs and power tools and dismember animals. And, and so you can about imagine, he's a scary kid. He grew up to, to be a scary uh, adult. Um, and honestly, I, I'm, not, I'm not proud to admit this, but, you know, when we were kids, we gave Matt a really hard time. You know, we did. We would, we would push his buttons and just flip the switch and then stand back and watch the show. But one of the things that um, we didn't know about Matt that I found out a lot later is that when Matt was just a toddler in diapers, um, when I knew Matt, he lived with an adopted family, but his, his birth mom was an addict. And at one particular time, uh, his mom went on like a five or six day binge and she left Matt uh, strapped in a uh, high chair for that entire length of time uh, in this apartment alone with his four-year-old sister, for, if you can imagine that, five or six days. And during those five or six days, um, his little sister tried to keep Matt okay and alive by rummaging through the apartment for whatever food uh, that she could find. <clears throat> so, stupid allergies, sorry. <clears throat> you know, you can about imagine, though, when I learned that, how my thinking about Matt, what I thought about Matt, my conclusions about Matt, uh, how that affected those things. Uh, because when it came to Matt, there was a lot more to the story that I didn't understand. Right? And it's kind of an extreme example. Uh, but the truth is, every, the same is true of every single person you and I come in contact with. Right? And I know you've got scars and wounds and there's people that drive you nuts and people that actively hurt people that you care about. I get it. Right? But every single one of those people, there's more to the story than we know. You know. And if there's one thing I've come to learn about people, it's hurt people hurt people. They just do. Right? And every person you come in contact with, they've got a story. Right? And part of their story is there's all kinds of things you can't know, you may never know. Hurts. Right? Withheld affection, loneliness, despair, abuse, we don't know. 
But what we do know is that there's more to them than that. And God thought that person, no matter how cruel, no matter how ugly, worth Jesus dying for. Right? And part of our call as kingdom people is to agree with him every single day. With every single person that we meet without exception. That is our call and our job. And I would say this, in a world that is often as as mean-spirited as it is, especially in political season, good Lord, it's about to get worse, right? In a world that is as mean-spirited as it is, right? A world that can often be so cold and so just bent on vengeance, this should be the thing that sets Jesus' church apart. This should be the thing that allows us as God's people, as his kingdom people, his church, to shine like a blinding light in the darkness, right? Not, not giveaways on Sunday morning, you know, and helicopter egg drops and really pristine, great produced worship services. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. I'm just saying that's just not the thing. You know, and all of you know, you know, in this particular culture, the church has kind of lost its voice and for some really good reasons, I think, and pushed to the outskirts. And, and I just think, man, if if we're going to engage the imagination and interest of an unbelieving and increasingly skeptical world, it's not going to be because of shiny theological statements or, or how persuasive our arguments are or the shiny Sunday morning pony show. It's going to be because we are a place where mercy reigns. Uh, people who are characterized first and foremost by Love And that is our call. And I can't express to you how important it is. This, is. this is what Jesus said in Matthew 9, just a little bit later in the same book. He says, go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. And I'll tell you this, and I challenge you to look for it for yourself. Anywhere in the Bible where you find religion and not mercy, either God isn't there or he's very, very angry. And he often brings about judgment. In fact, I would even go a little bit further and say this. You know, Jesus, when you look at his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Gospels, Jesus is relentlessly merciful, shows mercy in a million different ways to a million different people, um, figuratively speaking. It wasn't a million people. Um, But there was one group of people that he did not show mercy to, and that was the merciless people who refuse to show mercy. Jesus did not show mercy to, which reflects our beatitude that we're looking at here. And, and, and so this is a very serious, very serious thing. It's, it's a reflection of the character of God, mercy. And when we withhold mercy, all bets are off. And so I would just say as your pastor, if you're going to sin and you're going to sin, don't let it be this one. Right, we should be the kind of people who, where mercy reigns. That, that should be the, the reigning characteristic of Jesus' church. And I would say, man, until we are the kind of people uh, where thieves and prostitutes, uh, addicts and users, abusers and you name it, until the kind of people who would never probably walk in on, by themselves on a Sunday morning are drawn to us in the same way that they were drawn to Jesus, we're, we're missing it. We're missing it. But when that begins to happen, man, you can't stop a community like that. You can't stop what God is going to do through a church like that. And I, I want to be a part of a church like that. You know, I, I love what uh, G.K. Chesterton said about St. Francis of Assisi. 
He said he walked the earth as the pardon of God. That's our call, to be a people who walk the earth as the pardon of God. And here, here's my prayer for us in 2016. Um, Jesus' brother, James, uh, he eventually came to Christ, became a follower and believer in Jesus, which is amazing, and pastored the first church. And he wrote an epistle. He wrote a letter. And in the second chapter, after saying all the kinds of things that should characterize us, things that, like what we're talking about, kindness and, and love and mercy, then he says these words. And th- my prayer is this would be our motto for 2016. He says this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My prayer, my hope, is that God would make this so. That it would be so in your life as an individual and in us as a church. All right, let me pray for you. Lord God, I can't thank you enough for the mercy that you have shown me in my relatively short life. Most of the people in this room have no idea about the skeletons in my closet, but all the ways that I have fallen short, the people that I have hurt along the way, the thoughts that have gone screaming through my head. But you know all those things. And you have shown me nothing but mercy. And for every person sitting in this room, whether they realize it yet or not, the same is true of them. And they might be running right now in headlong full rebellion from you. They refuse to believe. They don't really want to hear it. But you pursue them with your love regardless. With mercy on tap, just waiting for them to turn to you. Lord God, I ask for us, for every person in this room, that in 2016, Lord God, that you would bring us face to face with your love, that you would allow us to understand and become conscious of just the depth and the richness and relentless mercy that you show each and every one of us every second of every day, and that we would be a people who work tirelessly to pay that mercy forward. That we would be a people who actively seek to affirm in every person that we come across that they are worth Jesus dying for. Lord, may that be true in us. Make it true of us. God, we give you this moment and we give you this year pray these things in your name and all God's people said.